Whenever we sing this song we have, we have just did, Gloria Hoover is so sweet to remind me a particular detail about this song. That the song, Fairest Lord Jesus, used to be sung in her high school um, class uh, some decades ago. Uh, it's been a long time since we would, uh, we would hear such songs in high school. Uh, but praise be to God that we get to sing a song about how worthy, how much more worthy Jesus is than anything this world can offer us. Uh, friends, I uh, remember um, two years ago when um, President Obama at that time uh, came to visit Austin. And I remember the, the traffic jam that was caused by the uh, fact that he came to visit our city, uh, that certain highways were closed and certain parts of the city were heavily, heavily protected to provide uh, security. Why? Because uh, the President of the United States uh, was visiting our own city. We as a people um, get excited when, when someone with a high prestige, with a high uh, stature in society uh, comes to visit us. We, we turn our attention to him. We turn our eyes towards him. He gets public news, public coverage, uh, news coverage, and, and our eyes are upon him. Have you ever heard public coverage or attention being given to a maid, to a servant, to someone who's not that important in our eyes, to someone who's just sent to, to do a task, perhaps a menial task? Well, I assure you, there's going to be no attention given to servants in our society. We like to think about leaders. Even our, even our schools, even our children, we try to teach them how to be good leaders. We promote the qualities that make leadership great. Nobody wants to promote the qualities that make great servants. We don't teach our children, or don't we think highly of the quality, of the virtue of being a great servant. We want our children to be equipped for being great leaders. Our society, our culture looks at heroes, looks at, looks at people who can make an impact. Well, this morning, we're going to look at God and how He draws our attention away from idols, away from the things that can mesmerize us, away from the, the pictures, the, the heroes, the idols that can lure our attention. And He wants to turn our attention and he's going to start with a phrase, Behold, my servant. Would you open God's word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42? We'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, verse 25. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the pews in front of you. You may find this passage on page 602. If you don't own a Bible or if you don't have an ESV Bible, we'd love for you to grab the Pew Bibles, take it home with you. We'd love for you to read it. It's our gift to you. Uh, we would encourage you to read God's Word, and, and we pray that you would find it uh, full of treasures for your spiritual heart, for your, for your soul. Here's God's Word for us this morning as we prepare to hear from the Lord. God says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay mountains and hills. I lay, will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as a servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger, 
and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to speak to our hearts? Father, we do not have the power in ourselves, in our nature, to understand your word rightly, unless you assist us by your spirit. Would you do so now for the glory of Christ? Help us to understand your word for us in a way that our hearts might be drawn to you with full reliance and trust. We pray this in the name of Christ through the Holy Spirit's power. Amen. In the passage we just read, we are introduced to a major new player in the book of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. The description of this servant in this passage is done in such a poetic shape, such a poetic form, that Bible interpreters often call verses 1 through 9 of chapter 42 as the servant song. It's so poetic that it's called the servant song. If we keep reading through Isaiah, we find out there are four such servant songs spread out through the book of Isaiah. And they are devoted, these songs are devoted to describe the person and the ministry of the servant of the Lord. Chapter 42 introduces us to the first song. The other three songs are found in chapter 49, in chapter 50, and then in chapter 52 and 53 combined. This morning, we are looking at the first song of the servant, or the first servant song. And the title of my message this morning is, Look at God's Servant. In chapter 41, just to help us remember where we were last week, in chapter 41, God called the gods of the other nations to bring forth evidence for their existence. We saw last week how God called the gods of the other nations to say, bring your case. Bring before us, bring before me the proof that you are real. God called for evidence for the existence of the other idols, for the existence of the other gods. And God also provided the proofs of his own existence. And he asked people to say, consider, reason together. Let's come for for reason together to know who is a true God. At the end of of that case, at the end of that scenario, at the end of chapter uh, 41, the the conclusion of of the evidence was, behold, They, meaning the gods of the nations, are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This is God's conclusion about the idols. If you want to know more what the evidence that God demanded, uh, you can go back to our sermon that's on the website. You can listen to, to the evidence that God demanded and the evidence that God gave for his own existence. As we considered last week, the case for God. This morning, as we look at the ending of that case, God says, listen, the idols are all a delusion. 
In contrast to the empty and worthless idols, God presents the alternative. What is God's alternative to the idols? God's alternative to the idols is a servant. God's servant. God says in verse 1 of chapter 42, Behold my servant. I wonder if you can see the two beholds of the end of 41. Verse 29, Behold, they are of delusion. They're all a delusion. And right next to it, after it, in chapter 42, God says, Behold my servant. Put these two together in contrast. Rather than turning to idols, God calls his people to look at the servant that God is sending. This is a special servant. At this point in the book, Isaiah does not tell us the name of the servant. Earlier in chapter 41, in verse 8, God called Israel my servant. And we will see the references to Israel as being God's servant again in chapter 42, verse 19. But at the beginning of chapter 42, the servant of the Lord is different than the people of Israel. Why do I say that? Notice what the servant will do. In, in verses 2, 3, and 4, notice that the servant is described as bringing justice to the nations. We see this mission described in, at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This statement is again restated in verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then again in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Now it's hard to miss this overarching uh, task that the servant of the Lord will have to bring justice to the nations. What is surprising in his mission is not merely that he will bring justice, but that he will bring justice to the nations, to the ends of the earth, and that he will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged until this purpose is established. Oh, friends, this is no, this is no nation of Israel. This is no nation of Israel. If that was so, it, this, perp, this, this description has definitely missed the point. Also, the word for justice in the Hebrew language is not limited to what you and I think of justice. We might think of justice in two primary terms. We might think of justice as making uh, right what is wrong. So a common way of thinking about justice is an appropriate way of thinking about justice. Another way we might think about justice is uh, in terms of a declaration in a court setting, a sentence that a judge declares, hopefully, what is right. These are true meanings of the word justice. But in the Hebrew language, there is a third dimension that is often connected with the meaning of justice. In the Hebrew language, a notion of justice has the additional sense that it is related to God's law. Justice in the Bible is related to God's law. Justice is what God declares to be right. Justice is not what we find to be right in our own eyes, but what God finds to be right, what God reveals to be right. Now, why do I, how do we see that connection in this passage? Look at verse 4. 
we see how justice and God's law are connected. It says about the servant, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And then look at what the next phrase says. And the coastlands wait. We would expect to say, and the coastlands wait for his justice. But that's not what it says. It says that the coastlands wait for his law. Do you see how in this verse, justice, the justice that the servant will bring, is connected with the law that he has? The law that he brings. The servant of the Lord brings justice to the nations by means of revealing his law. He doesn't bring justice by establishing our law. He doesn't bring justice by just upholding our law. He brings justice by bringing his law. And the nations are looking forward, are waiting for this law. Friends, many people today yearn for justice. There's even a buzzword these days called social justice. And even non-religious people are hooked on this, on this desire for, for living life, for social justice, and bringing justice to the world. And it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful direction. It's a wonderful thing where we should yearn for. But friends, the Bible tells us that the one who will bring forth justice to the nations is not the people. It's his servant. God's servant. If we want to see justice in the world, then seek the servant whom God sends for that purpose. And seek that servant because he brings a law according to which that justice will be established. Now notice how this special servant will carry out his ministry. Notice in verse 2 how the servant will will carry out his ministry. Notice his humility in verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In other words, this servant, he will not draw attention to himself. He will not be flashy. He will not engage in propaganda or advertising or seeking to gain influence by human strategies or, or campaigning or loudness. Friends, this characteristic of a servant's work should give us great caution. Here's why. The caution is that we can miss the servant's work. The servant's work can take place around us. And we may not recognize it because he's quiet. We may not recognize it because he, he is, he's humble about it. This servant's ministry will be characterized by an approach of non-flashy, non-coercive message. The fact that the servant will not lift up his voice and make, make it heard in the streets also indicates that what makes his ministry successful is not human strategies of communication or influence or advertising. Friends, think about the life of the church. How often do we think that if we can just get the right advertising, if we can just get the right signs, if we can just have a, a, a person on staff who would help us develop a, an artsy campaign so that our services will look artsy and cozy and attractive, 
Friends, there's, there's people at churches today who might even hire a pastor of arts. So that, so that artsiness and the way we package the message would, would really be attractive. Oh, friends, recognize that the servant of the Lord will act in a way that will not draw human-based attraction, human-based strategies. He will do it quietly in a way that people can miss it. And yet, he will be successful. Notice not only his humility, notice his gentleness. In verse 3, God gives us more illustrations about the way uh, the servant is working. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. These two pictures show that the servant of the Lord will be gentle and caring in his ministry. His ministry will be marked by the motivation to restore what is bruised. To flame what is barely burning. I love how one of the commentators said, To this servant, nothing is useless. Even the bruised reed, which is useless as a support or for anything else. The servant's work is to restore what is bruised. Sometimes people have the impression that they have fallen too far from God. Oh, friends, the servant's work will not, bru- will not break that which is bruised. If you'd like to know more about this, the ministry of the servant as, as, a, as, a, as a one who will not break a bruised reed, I want to encourage you to pick up a book called The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs. It's a, it's a Puritan paperback. Love for you to incur- to read it. Um, just want to give you a warning. It's a little bit of an older English language, um, but it will do great blessing to your soul if you can plow through that language and persevere through reading it. It will do great blessing to your soul. The bruised read by Richard Sibbs. Notice also not only his gentleness, but notice the servant's endurance in verse four. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. The special servant of the Lord is unlike any of us. We grow faint. We grow discouraged. We might get discouraged that things don't go the way we want or the way we expected, either in our lives or in our families or even in the church. What a great comfort to know that the servant whom God sends out, the servant whom God presents to us as an alternative to our idols, this servant will not get discouraged. This servant will not grow faint. His endurance is unlike any of ours. These characteristics of the servant of the Lord, given that these are the characteristics, it's no wonder that God introduced him with these words in verse 1, in whom, in him whom my soul delights. Did you pick up on that description? Think about it this way. We don't care much about servants. We like to hang out with CEOs. We like to hang out with with the important people from Silicon Valley or from important people in our, in our government or in our society or, or in, in certain places. But listen to who is it that God delights in, in his servant. I wonder what it would take for our souls to delight in this servant just as much as God delights in him. But you might wonder, who is this servant after all? If it's not Israel, who is it? When we turn to the New Testament, we find out who the servant is. 
It's given to us explicitly, black and white. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, the passage we read earlier in the service, um, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, and Jesus healed him on a Sabbath, which caused the Pharisees to conspire against Jesus. And after, after this takes place, Matthew goes on and says, Jesus, aware of this, aware that the Pharisees were, were conspiring against him, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. Do you hear that echo of, of quietness? Keep it quiet, folks. And Matthew goes on to say, why? He goes on to say, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Do you see what Matthew is doing here? He is telling us that the ministry of Jesus was quiet in order to fulfill what Isaiah has prophesied 700 years before. Oh, friends, Jesus' ministry did not depend upon mere human advertisement. His ministry was not dependent upon human enthusiasm and human loudness. We might have said, Jesus, can't you capitalize on this public relations capital that you have just earned with these people that you have healed? Let him go and just tell everybody about you. But Jesus says, no. Be quiet. Don't tell anyone. What a countering message. What a counterintuitive agenda. Friends, do we understand the strategy about Jesus' ministry? He does not need our loudness. He does not. He does not need our human-based, attention-grabbing strategies. What would it take for us to adopt the confidence that God's work among us is not based on how loud or flashy we are? It's not based on how attention-grabbing is our service or our outreach. God can carry out His work through the quiet and humble and faithful work of His servant. Does that mean that we should keep quiet about God? Or that we should not worry about speaking God's truth and outreach? Oh, absolutely not. We should do that because God commands us to go and speak the truth to those around us. We also know that how will faith happen? How will people come to faith? By hearing the word of Christ. But our confidence is not and should not be in how loud we are or how flashy we are, but in God who can take the meek servant and make his work successful. As we look back to the book of Isaiah, we realize that the special nature of the servant, um, we realize this special nature by how God commissions him for ministry. If in verses 1 through 4, God spoke about his servant to us, in verses 5 through 7, God speaks to us about his servant. God speaks to his servant and what God commissions his servant to do. Look at verse 6 and 7. It's as if we get a commissioning statement. Here's what God says now directly to his servant. And listen to verse 6 and 7. I will give you as a covenant for the people. 
a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. What a task. What a task. This is the commission that God gives his servant. The servant is not merely sent to make a covenant with the people. No, God says that God will give his servant to be a covenant. Did you catch that? The covenant God will make with the people will be based entirely upon the ministry and the person of this servant. He will be God's covenant to the people. Friends, this is why God's soul delights in the servant. For the servant will accomplish and be the means by which God will establish a new relationship between the people, between the nations, and God. God gives us, God gives the nations this servant so that through him we can have a new relationship with God. And when the servant will become a covenant for the people, look at the effects that this servant will have upon the people. When he will become a covenant for the people, look at the effects. He will bring the light into darkness. He will open the eyes of the blind, and he will release the prisoners and make them free. These are the effects that the servant of the Lord will accomplish when he is given as a covenant to the nations. Well, friends, in order for God to take away the darkness, in order for God to take away the blindness, in order for God to take away the spiritual imprisonment, God sent his servant to be a covenant for us, and God gave us his servant to be a covenant. The servant song ends in verse 9 with a declaration that God does not give his glory to another, nor his praise to carved idols. His glory is seen in the fact that God is making a new path for the nations who have been steeped into idolatry, who have been steeped into darkness, who have been steeped into blindness, who have been steeped into spiritual imprisonment, God makes a way for them to have a path opened. And that path is through the servant of the Lord. Oh, my dear friend, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're visiting us this morning. We're so glad you're with us. We hope to get to know you. We hope you come and visit again. But realize there's a... There's a big difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And one way we can describe that difference is through this picture of spiritual blindness. One of the things that God says about us as, as human beings before we come to know Him, before we come to have a relationship with Him, is that apart from God, we are spiritually blind. We may see with our eyes, but we don't, we don't see with our hearts. We don't see the things of the Spirit. We don't see the spiritual realities that God is great, that Satan is real, that hell is real. We don't see those things. But just because we are convinced that they don't exist doesn't mean that they're not there. Just as a blind man may not see things, and he's convinced that there's, there's only darkness. But there's a reality. There's a light. Friends, if you'd like to know more about this Savior this servant that the Lord provides to open the eyes of the blind, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. But notice, after God describes the, the, the work that he does through the servant, notice the second thing that God does. The servant's work gives us a new song to sing. The desired reaction to this 
first song about the servant of the Lord is to respond to God with joyful singing. Look at verse 10. Sing to the Lord. Sing a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. If we keep reading verse 10 and verse 11, we find out who is called to sing this praise. It says, all that fills the sea are called to praise the Lord. The fish, the coastlands, their inhabitants, the desert and its cities, the villages and their inhabitants, all of them are called to glory and give glory to the Lord and declare his praise. Friends, ask yourself, how often, how often do you sing to the Lord out of joy? How often do you sing to the Lord out of joy? One of the reasons why we are intentional about singing congregational songs is because we want to equip you to be singing Christians. We want to, we want to put songs in your mouth that speak about the Lord. We want to put songs in your mouth that you can speak and sing on your own and not be embarrassed about yourself. Some of you may still feel that way. That's okay. But we want to be singing Christians. Why? Because the Lord calls us to sing a new song to the Lord. And we want to do that not only when we're gathered on Sundays, we want to do that when we're scattered throughout the week. Ask yourself, are there times in the week beside our Sunday gatherings that you sing? Parents, do you sing God's songs with your children? In your family devotion times, do you sing? One of the reasons why we print the songs in our bulletins is so that you can take these songs with you and sing throughout the week. The aim of the singing, however, is to express joy and praise and confidence and glory in God for accomplishing such amazing a ta task through the servant whom he has sent. When we come to understand and see the servant of the Lord, the appropriate response is worship. The appropriate response is praise. The appropriate response is singing. Our joyful singing is a manifestation of what we truly rejoice in, of what we find delight in. When we come to experience the work of God's servant in our hearts, when the darkness is removed, when the blindness is healed, when our bondage is broken, the natural response is joy. Singing with joy, giving glory to God. Friends, when was the last time that you responded that way to the Lord? If you haven't, or if, it's, if you've never experienced it, is it perhaps because you've never experienced the release of bondage? Is it perhaps because you've never experienced the opening of the eye? Is it perhaps because you've never experienced the, the light from darkness? Why can we respond with such joyful worship to God? In verses 13 and 14, we see two images that describe God. We see two images that describe God as a mighty man, fighting against his foes and as a woman in labor. Friends, I struggled to figure out what do I make of these two images? What do they have in common? God putting before us a picture of himself as a mighty man ready to go to war. And as a woman who has been pregnant waiting to give birth and now finally ready to deliver. And, and the woman in the pain of giving birth. The imagery of God as a mighty warrior 
shows that God is ready to fight for his people. That God is ready to bring the light out of darkness, to heal the blindness of his people, and to, to, to take him out of their imprisonment. We have a God who is ready to fight for the purposes of the servant of the Lord to be fully accomplished. We have also an imagery of a God as a woman in labor, showing that God is willing to suffer for his people as he is giving birth to a new life. Barry Webb, one of the commentators said, redemption is accomplished with tremendous effort and at a great cost. And it is the glory of the Lord that he spares himself neither. Neither the effort nor the suffering. Notice the effect of God being like a mighty warrior and as a woman in labor. First creation itself will be affected. In verses 15 and 16, God says, I will lay waste, lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry um, the, up the pools. In other words, God's power will be so high that he will affect the entire creation and he will bring destruction to it. Why would this be good news for us? Because God says that the creation we attach ourselves to, the creation that we are lured to cherish more than the creator, that creation will come to an end by God breathing out. We are dealing with a God who has a right to turn into darkness and to turn into destruction anything that we might cherish from this creation. God's plan, however, is not merely destructive. This is not just a, a, a mean God. This is a good God. He acts this way for our goodness. Notice his goodness in the, in the other effects. God promises to lead the blind in new paths which they have not known. In other words, the ignorance of the blind people is not an obstacle for God. God can lead the blind in new ways. Friends, when God comes to deal with our idolatry, it requires him to take us on new paths which we have not yet walked in. As blind people, we are used to our patterns of walking in blindness. And the Lord says, I'm going to heal your blindness, but I'm going to take you on a new path. Are you open to let God take you on a new path which you have not walked before? Walking on new paths may feel like nerve-wracking. That's what God does for the blind. He's taking them on new paths that they have not yet walked in. That's what God promises to do when we begin to follow God. The goodness of God is also seen in the last promise that God says that he will remove the blindness so they have no more reason to stumble in their darkness. Verse 16, I will turn the darkness before them into light. And then God also promises that all the obstacles from their path will be taken away. Look at verse 16 again. I will turn the darkness before them into light and the rough places into level ground so that God not only guides the blind in new paths, but also God removes from them the blindness and the obstacles from their path. Notice how God here, when he describes his own work, how it matches with the work of the servant of the Lord. Did you, did you, do you see that comparison? Whatever God said the servant will do, now God says that he himself will do. And we might wonder, now, which one is it? Reality is, it's both. It's both. 
Yet even though God promises to do all these things, all the great things for the nations, the reality is that people will still prefer to remain in idolatry. In verse 17, idolaters are given a great caution. We're told what fruits they will reap if they prefer to remain with their idolatry. Look at verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Friends, in our plural society today, we are used to hear people say that truth is different for everyone. Today, people may not object to truth as long as you allow them to say that truth is different for everyone. But here God says that those who embrace idols will not remain neutral. Those who trust in man-made idols will reap shame. Friends, this is what is at stake with idolatry. This is what is at stake with worshiping false gods, gods that are not true. We will reap shame. Idolatry comes with a high price tag. Worshiping false gods comes with a high price tag. The price may not be paid right away. People may enjoy their idols for a while. People may, may enjoy worshiping their false gods for a while. People may find safety and comfort in their idols for a while, but not forever. Idolaters will reap shame. So far, we have seen how God's alternative to idols is his servant. We've seen that the servant's work gives us a new song to sing. Finally, and lastly, a third point, blindness shows up closer than expected. Blindness shows up closer than expected. The surprising truth, truth in, the, in the last part of chapter 42 is that these truths, these promises of, of opening the eyes of the blind are needed not merely for the Gentiles, but they're needed for God's own people. The last part of chapter 43 shows us that the blindness that God exposed earlier the blindness that God commissioned his special servant to take away from the nations, the blindness that God promised to remove, the blindness that he himself promised to remove, that blindness is found in the least expected place among God's people. In verses 18 to 25, we see the blindness of Israel exposed. Look at verse 18. Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see who is blind but my servant? Of, and who is deaf as, as, as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as a servant of the Lord? The shocking verse in this chapter is that the very servant of the Lord who was first identified in chapter 41 as Israel is now identified as being the blind one. And their blindness is even greater because they have received the word of God. And yet they have not seen it. God describes their blindness, not just, not just as blindness, but also as deafness. It's not physical. It's spiritual. Look at verse 20. He sees many things with eyes, but he does not observe. His ears are open physically, but he does not hear. In other words, Israel had access to God's law. Israel had access to God's mighty works. Israel has, been God's, has seen God's mighty works in the history of the Old Testament, but they did not understand them. Friends, this should give us caution. Simply having access to God's Word 
or simply seeing God's power at work around us does not mean that we see or hear God for who he really is. Friends, don't take comfort simply in the fact that you have contact with God's word or with God's power. You may hear God's word physically, like you're hearing it right now. You may see and hear of God's power in the lives of others. And yet, you may be spiritually deaf and spiritually blind. Don't take comfort merely in the fact that you attend church or in the fact that you hear sermons or in the fact that you're God at work. All these things can be true in your life and yet be spiritually blind, just as Israel had been. And notice how God describes the law that God has given to his people in verse 21. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. And by the way, at this time, all the people of God had was the Old Testament. Take that. Take that to the bank. God wanted even his Old Testament to make it glorious and to magnify his law. This is how God wants his word to be understood and to see it, to be experienced, magnified and glorious. But for them, for God's people, other things were more glorious. Other things grabbed their attention as being more magnificent. Friend, do you see God's law as magnificent and glorious? When you can't see the glorious nature of God's word, that should ring alarm bells. That should let the red lights go off. It's the same problem that the people of Israel had in their blindness. That should ring some bells in our minds. If we don't see God's word as God intended it, is it perhaps because we are affected to some degree of the same blindness that the people of Israel experienced? Friends, spiritual blindness begins when we fail to see God's word as magnificent and glorious. And when our eyes are dazzled by other things or people as being more important or glorious and the spiritual blindness can develop not only in us as individuals it can develop also in us as a church remember the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation they thought of themselves as being rich as having prospered as needing nothing and the Lord said to them you are wretched pitiful pitiable poor blind the Lord Jesus identifies an entire church, the church in Laodicea, as a blind church. Blindness is a spiritual condition that we can fall into as individuals or as a church. Whenever our attention becomes mesmerized with other things than the Lord. Have you heard the phrase, having a blind spot? Even though we might have a decent vision, spiritually speaking, we can also develop a blind spots. So that in some areas of our lives, we fail to see the things of God as God intends us to see them. We may see things well in other areas of life, but we have blind spots. Listen to the Apostle Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you see how even for us as Christians, blindness can be a trap we can fall back into when we develop blind spots in our own walk with the Lord? One of the greatest blessings of being a member in the body of Christ is that we have committed to watch over one another, to encourage one another against spiritual blindness. Our membership covenant has this phrase as part of our membership commitment that we commit to exercise watchfulness over one another and admonish one another when necessary. Why do we have this as part of our membership covenant? Because of, because of the reality that sin blinds us. So part of our encouragement as members of God's body of Christ in this congregation is to encourage one another to look to God's servant. He is glorious. God's word is glorious. God sent his servant so that the servant would establish a new covenant, that he would be a new covenant for us so that through that covenant, our eyes might be healed from their blindness. And even in our walk with the Lord, when we are tempted to fall into spiritual blind spots, that we can watch over one another, we can care for one another, and encourage one another to put away these blind spots. Oh, friends, what is God's alternative to our idolatry? What is God's solution to our blindness? God's alternative to idols and idolatry and blindness is His servant. And the servant's work gives us a new song to sing, and blindness shows up closer than expected. I pray that through these encouragements that we can appreciate what the Lord has committed to do for his people. And friends, don't think that these works the Lord has planned to do just for people out there. He wants these works to be done here, here, in my heart and in your heart. Let's bow in prayer. O Lord, who, you who have sent your servant to open the eyes of the blind, would you open the eyes of the blind among us? Would you take away the blindness that might be in our own hearts? Would you take away the blind spots? O Lord, would you heal us? Would you help us see your law? Would you help us see your justice and crave for it and wait for it? O Lord, we pray that you would help us see you, your servant, and the law that he came to bring as glorious, as magnificent. We pray that you enable us to do so in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory and honor.